Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. So, what's in the news this week, Sam? <laughs> also, we're both very happy because our cat's in the closet with us today. I mean, in the studio <laughs> with us today. Banshee, would you like to say hi to the audience? We did it. We did it. <gasps> she meowed. Please tell me someone heard that chirp. I hope that's on there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, but today we are going to talk about tariffs. So, what is a tariff? Do they know things? Let's find out. <laughs> you know, that's probably a good description. <laughs> okay, no, but the agenda for this episode is I'm going to talk about a kind of recent news story dealing with tariffs between the U.S. and U.K. and then go into a history of tariffs. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Wait, we should probably start with what is a tariff, though. So. Basically, tariffs are taxes you levy on the import of goods from a specific country, right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Like that's that's what most people think of when they think of tariffs. Tariffs against China were us putting taxes on the import of goods from China, usually with the intention of helping protect domestic producers of things like steel and electronics from Chinese imports they might be competing with, which it sounds like it should be a good idea, right? Let's find out why it's not, usually. <laughs> Way to give away the goose. Okay. <laughs> but thank you for that explanation of tariffs. And yes, that's what I'm going to be referring to when I say tariffs. All right. Let's do this. All right. So on March 29th, the Biden administration warned it could put tariffs of up to 25% on some UK exports. So they released a list of what exports would have the new tariffs, which include ceramics, makeup, coats, game consoles, and furniture. Now, these new tariffs would be in retaliation for a tax that the U.K. imposed on tech firms. And that tax, called the Digital Service Tax, taxes tech firms on 2% of their revenues from search engines, social media services, and online marketplaces, which derive value from U.K. users. I find this very, very funny because I actually like this. I feel like that's a very justified reason for a tax from the UK because lots of tech firms are international. Lots of tech firms like, is it Apple? I'm trying to remember which ones are based in Ireland because they technically don't have to pay a tax. They're able to justify their primary location as Ireland so they can avoid a bunch of corporate income tax. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And so in this way, a big problem with the service industry is if you're making money by selling and being taxed in a specific country, but you are a global, like Google is a global search engine. Mm -hmm. People in every country except for China are using Google and even people in China are using Google. <laughs> but on the flip side, the UK, I don't know the things I described. I think I'm familiar with some exports of UK. I didn't know they sold game consoles. I don't know what game consoles they're selling. This is a very interesting, maybe it's just like if they have to sell a Nintendo game console from Britain. Yeah, I didn't dig into that, but I was also like game consoles, really? <laughs> but okay. All right, Britain. <laughs> like this is this is weird. Also, way to kick them while they're down. They're already dealing with Brexit, which they definitely should have figured <laughs> out months ago. And now we're just gonna throw the we're gonna sprinkle this right on top. All right, but let's let's get back into more info on this new digital tax that the UK imposed. So first, the tax only applies to companies with worldwide digital service revenue of more than five hundred million pounds. And UK digital services revenues are more than 25 million pounds. 
That's convenient because Google has a currency calculator. You can just ask it how many dollars is 500 million pounds, and they'll know how much they're supposed to be owing them. So that just worked out. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. It was a joke. bad joke. Wait, no. <laughs> is it this one? <laughs> the in-studio audience disagrees with you. So basically, the tax only applies to companies that make a ton of money. Okay, that like was the first thing. And then the tax was also first introduced last April and according to the UK government is a temporary tax until a global solution is in place to make sure tech firms pay their fair share in taxes. So kind of what you're saying, this is a problem that a lot of countries are facing and that there are a bunch of big tech firms, a lot of them based in the U.S., that are generating money from people not in the U.S. in their own countries, but those countries are not seeing any benefit from that revenue. Yeah, I'm winding up for what I'm going to now call the segment as a YouTube flex. I did a whole video about why you need to know your digital rights on YouTube, and it was basically trying to understand how you're supposed to interpret privacy notices, but a big part of it was looking at how GDPR and big laws that have to do with governing tech around the world mm-hmm. are helping to force tech to do things better. But the problem here is GDPR covers the EU, and guess who just decided they didn't want to be part of the EU? <laughs> so in my mind, I wouldn't be surprised if this came as, like, I, I don't know a lot about this law. Most of the time when you bring this stuff to me, I don't know what the story is. Uh-huh. But if there are protections already being created for the EU, obviously Brexit implies that Britain and the UK are no longer part of any benefit that would come from that. And so potentially this could be them trying to protect themselves in some way. I didn't think of that. That is probably related to what's going on here. I think I did read somewhere that France was looking into a similar tax to deal with stuff. So I don't know if GDPR would actually factor into having a tax, like having revenue from big tech companies that are in their countries. But yeah, there's probably connection there of Britain no longer being in the EU. Yeah, they probably had to make a specific tax because it would be harder to make a general tax in the EU. Like in the EU, the countries still have autonomy despite what Brexit boosters would tell you. (laughs) And as a result, they don't get any benefit from the EU doing stuff because they're not. So, okay, that makes sense. But then you got to look at the flip side of this, which is why Biden? Google's not hurting. Okay, great segue. So the U.S. obviously thinks this tax is unreasonable and discriminates against U.S. companies. And they actually launched an investigation by the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative last year, which concluded that same thing I just read in January. And so the U.S. believes the digital service tax will see U.S.-based companies paying the U.K. approximately $325 million per year. And so these tariff measures are designed to generate a similar amount to compensate for that. And how much is that in pounds? I don't. That was a joke. I don't care. I was like, <laughs> I'll Google it. I was like, I, I, I could ask Google right now, Cameron. <laughs> All right. That that here's the thing I find weird about it is in the one case you have a service industry that's not going to benefit the people, right? Google is making money off of our data. It's unambiguous. Yeah. So they're trying to get UK citizens data to have value for UK citizens. Like $325 million, when you look at the full GDP of either country, Mm -hmm. is not a lot of money. 
to any individual, that will be stupid amounts of money. To the gross domestic product of UK even now, that's peanuts. I don't know how much a peanut costs. But in your world, three hundred twenty-five million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a problem in general. Like this is a very nuanced conversation about how much does your data really cost? Because they've done different estimates that like if tech companies actually paid everyone how much their data is worth, it's like two hundred something dollars. Oh, it depends on the year. It depends on how much of their of your data they use. It depends on how much you use their platforms. But at the end of the day. It's a non-inconsequential amount of money, but it's not a life-changing amount of money. Yeah. And so this this is a very nuanced conversation that or was a tech ethicists and privacy engineers and all sorts of folks have had around how much your data costs. So this there's a very nuanced conversation on the Britain side. The America side doesn't make sense to me, though, because this is going to affect businesses. If you are a business that exports these goods, you might not be a very big business. And so if you depend on U.S. interest in your goods, that tax could be a lot. Yeah. You said 25%, right? Oh, yes. Up to 25% on some U.K. exports. Yes. Okay. Imagine you have a $400 Xbox. It is now $500. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So this can affect specific businesses. On the other side, Google is not crying over $325 million. They make billions of dollars a year. They make so much money. I get the U.S. being like, oh, this this is a tax that's directly affecting U.S. businesses. So we need to protect them. But also, like... Should we really care about giant tech firms making a buttload of money like yeah, <laughs> every year? I don't, I don't Should know that how really much, be what we're protecting? I don't know how much more you want to really dig into this before we jump into the history segment. But this gets into the proportionality of why tariffs are weird and sometimes bad. On the one side, you're trying to go after the fact that large tech companies that benefit from your user data are actively making money from your users. And that money's not really finding its way back into the UK economy. Mm-hmm. On the other side, the tariffs are proportional. Yeah, you're probably going to make the same amount of money back. So the net difference, I guess, with air quotes, is the same now instead of now $325 million isn't going – is coming from those tech companies. But on the other side, that $325 million that's going to America, to U.S. coffers, is coming from individual businesses. It's coming from smaller fish. Yeah, and – That is actually something we'll get into after going over the history of tariffs, of how tariffs can disproportionately affect certain parts of industry. They can be used to boost certain goods and then can also, in a way, hurt other goods. So it's just this weird trade-off you have with them. Also, I know that they described a whole bunch of industries, but I'm going to keep honing in on the video game part. I don't think Microsoft's afraid of British competition. (laughs) That may not even be the video games in this. All right. So before we move on to the history section, two things I want to mention. One, this threat by the Biden administration is not a done deal. Washington has started having hearings related to the tariffs. I think they've started since this happened a month ago. I also want to point out that the Biden administration didn't actually start this process. This plan was started under the Trump administration and then it was continued by the Biden administration. There it is. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, the Biden administration still continued this. They they could have stopped this process, but they decided to still go ahead with this. Well, now we're just getting into politicking. <laughs> yes. Welcome to this podcast. 
Okay, so as we slowly shove Banshee out of the studio, with air quotes again, <laughs> do you want to get back into the history of tariffs and what's going on here? Yes. So now I thought we should go into Sam's history corner and to learn about tariffs and see from examining the history of tariffs, maybe we can figure out what are they? What's the point? Do they know things? Let's find out. Yes, that. David Banshee, why are you back? She wants to be on the podcast. That, hang on, I got this. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> Banshee, give us your very nuanced opinion on trade tariffs. (laughs) All right. First, let's start in the U.S. So tariffs in the U.S. go back to when the country first started. One of the first acts Congress signed into law was the Tariff Act of 1789, which basically put tariffs on most foreign imports. So this was promoted by Alexander Hamilton, and the point of the act was twofold. One was to help grow American manufacturing, which was just starting out. In fact, it's estimated that during that time, 90% of the labor force was in agriculture, so the U.S. relied a lot on foreign imports of textiles. The tariffs would hopefully make U.S. manufactured goods cheaper than foreign ones and promote Americans to buy the local goods instead. Now, the second reason for these tariffs was to raise money for the federal government, which after fighting a war and just becoming a country was completely broke. So taxing imports was pretty much the only way for the federal government to make money. Like, this is before income taxes were a thing. So, in fact, it's estimated in some years of the 19th century that the tariffs provided 95% of the revenue for the federal government. Yeah, a weird thing to think about back then is that, like, we still got a lot of stuff. I don't know why I said we. Like, I'm an old-timey colonial pilgrim or something. (laughs) Yeah, we? Who's we? (laughs) America got a lot of stuff from overseas and from trading with other countries. And so if you're reliant on other countries for your basic staples, then it's not super great for building your own economy. So that, that makes a lot of sense. The other side of this is, like you rightly pointed out, a lot of things that we actually tax now that like go into making a gigantic pile of money for the government every year, mm-hmm. we just didn't do back then. Like there was no income tax. Like we taxed the sales of some goods and things. Like there was the whole whiskey rebellion was around the tax of whiskey and its production and sale. Yeah. And so... First of all, a lot of people, we made a whole country about how we don't want to be told what to do. Why are you telling me I have to give you money? <laughs> like this this is not a small part of American history. Taxes are not something we've ever liked. I can say that part because I think modern Americans also do not care for most taxes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, this is a big thing. It's like you're taxing the import of goods. And on the one hand, it seemed like a tariff on its face seems like a really easy sell. It's like we're going to make sure that if anyone buys their stuff and doesn't want to buy American, then they'll have to pay money to the government so that we can really get them. And so it sounds like this really good nationalist idea, even though now we know this not as good. <laughs> yes, but also at the time it worked. It yeah. was pretty good. Oh, also want to point out that probably to no surprise to anyone, Thomas Jefferson was opposed to this idea. And the reason he was opposed to it is because he didn't like that it favored the northern industrial goods over the southern crops and also didn't like that it gave the federal government money, which he was opposed to because he wanted the federal government to be as small as possible. Hmm. I wonder what why Thomas Jefferson was doing with Southern crops. I wonder if there's like a big part of his history people like to forget about when it comes to Thomas Jefferson and his ad- agriculture business. <laughs> Nothing comes to mind. Okay. But also, 
this conversation is having way less to do with economics and way more to do with how people felt about the country during its creation. Yes, like that's, definitely. That's like something to, and also the, I cannot stress this enough. If you look at the modern tariff tax code, it is huge. It is like an encyclopedia. Back then, it was I think there was like a thousand tariffs on like very specific things. Oh yeah, extremely complex. Yeah. It's still complex. That's what I'm saying. Back then, it was like not that many tariffs compared to now. First of all, there weren't that many goods. Oh, and second yeah, of all, yeah. there weren't that many conditions around those goods. Like if your goal is to boost manufacturing by saying we don't want people to import certain like furniture or I don't know, dishware, you can specify like we do not want any import of furniture from France without a tax. Whereas now, if you buy a costume of Santa Claus, it is taxed differently than if you buy a winter coat that happens to go with a Santa Claus outfit. Both are part of Santa Claus outfit, but one is considered high enough quality that is taxed at a higher rate on import tariffs than a like cheapo Halloween spirit store Santa Claus outfit. Yeah, it's it gets a little ridiculous. I yeah. wasn't even going to go into that because I think I pulled up a wiki list of them and I went, oh, no. And yeah, then I no, just we'll, closed it immediately. The rest of this podcast could just be us reading each individual tariff and talking about how <laughs> wacky it is. Yes. Okay, but the U.S. having tariffs was actually in line with what most European powers were doing at that time. So most of Europe believed in mercantilism, thinking that the value of one's exports should be greater than the value of one's imports. And this policy continued until the early 1800s, when European countries started creating trade agreements between each other and promoting free trade. But after a depression in the late 1800s, most of those agreements were gone and European countries started having protectionist tariffs again. It's also like a super colonialist mindset when you think about like how can you possibly export more than you import and have everyone else also do that unless you have somewhere else that's like a giant like money dump for where those supplies are going, which happens to be your colonies. Yes, <laughs> that's a good point. Also, a weird thing to think about. I love this fact about Canadian history. Canada's confederation basically came as an ec economic agreement with Britain because they could only like if you know what the Jones Act is for America, where like Puerto Rico can only get stuff from mainland America. Mm -hmm. Like it was basically like that. Canada could only trade with the UK. And obviously they traded with the U.S., but like oh. a big part of their history was they had to, as a colony of the United Kingdom, had to primarily trade with the U.K. And eventually the U.K. realized it was cheaper to just buy wheat from local like European powers than it was to wait for it to come all the way from frickin' Canada. <laughs> wait, are you saying the U.K. realized it was cheaper to give Canada its independence? Than yes. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> economics drives so much of the world. That's obviously more nuanced than that. Obviously, Canadians fought very hard for independence a few times and unfortunately did not get the same success as the American Revolution because America's revolution happened under very specific circumstances. But still, economics. Wow. That can also get into how the economics played into the American Revolution, but we don't have time for that. No, we don't have time for that. That is not what this episode is about. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to U.S. history. Tariffs continued to be important through the 1800s and also continued to be controversial. First, tariffs were raised after the War of 1812 to recover money from the War of 1812. And next, the Tariff of 1828 happened, which angered the South because it raised taxes on imported goods and raw materials. 
And then you had the Walker Tariff in 1846, which tried to basically even out those taxes <laughs> between the North and South to appease the South. And then guess what? The Civil War happened. So then because of the Civil War, tariffs were raised again to fund the war. There you go. <laughs> and remember, no income tax. No income tax this whole time. Yes. Great segue, because those tariffs pretty much stayed around until 1913, when the 16th Amendment was ratified that legalized the income tax. So after that, tariffs were then lowered because the federal government had a new way to raise money. And this is really the moment when the tariffs that Hamilton like first promoted way back no longer had a purpose, because there was no longer a need to generate money for the government— and American manufacturing was booming in this time from the industrial era. So there was really no need to protect it any longer. But this is also the era where we start to get some very special interest tariffs. Like lobbying and tariffs is a big thing about how we only want to buy U.S. steel and U.S. oil. And the U.S. is going to be the best. And so any company with money in its pocket that could afford lobbyists was trying to get a tariff to protect their business. Are you going to say what I'm going to say next? I think you're going to say what I'm going to say next. I'm, I'm, this is me like this is like. Wow. Then what a mind game. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my, it's like having a history test where like I'm like being, I like trying to make sure I know the answers before you ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because the next big thing in tariff history that comes up in the U.S. is the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930. Yeah. Fun fact. This is the tariff that they make a passing comment about and Ferris Bueller's day off. And the guy... Oh, yes, the teacher. Yeah, the teacher, the guy who goes Bueller, Bueller. Yeah, mm. yes. He's talking about it. And funny enough, his dad was an economist who studied the Smoot-Hawley tariff. <laughs> that, that teacher's dad. <laughs> I love it. What a what a fun movie fact that's mm -hmm. coming to this history corner. Cameron, Cameron's <laughs> trivia corner is nestled within... <laughs> The Russian nesting dolls of trivia corners. Great. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful podcast. <laughs> okay, let's get back to Smoot Hawley. So, what was this tariff act? Well, the goal of these tariffs were to protect American farmers by having high tariffs on imports and also would hopefully help the U.S. after the stock market crash of 1929. Well, that didn't happen. Instead, European countries retaliated by creating their own tariffs, and trade between the U.S. and Europe declined by two-thirds. And then there was war. Yes, and then there was war. Specifically, World War II happened. Okay, this is one thing obviously did not lead directly to the other. I just, I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to bring up in the chronology of history. Yeah, let's be clear. I don't want to say that we're promoting that the Smoot-Hawley tariffs caused World War II. I, think, I, I do think this is a very specific time in which before countries relied on other countries for certain staples, but they could get by. This is starting to get into a space where we're living in a global economy. Like there was such active regular trade between countries across the globe, like across giant oceans, there was still such active regular trade yeah. that this is seen as an attack. Like tariffs could be seen before as protectionist. Now they're just political. Yeah. Now this is the era of retaliation, mm -hmm. <laughs> I like to call it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So as Cameron mentioned, World War II happened. And after World War II comes the era of free trade. So you had the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, which was signed by 23 nations to promote international trade by reducing or eliminating tariffs. And that's the precursor to the World Trade Organization. So since then, the U.S. has generally favored free trade. There's 
obviously been some tariffs since World War II. And then most notably, there were the ones imposed by President Trump. But for the most part, the global economy has been favoring free trade. And I do want to point out this time, by free trade, what I really mean is really complex trade agreements between different nations and not like a global free trade where there are no tariffs, no restrictions whatsoever. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of stuff gets written into those trade agreements. Like technically we have a trade agreement with China where China's supposed to do a way, way better job protecting against um, infringement on American copyright and patents, mm-hmm. which they definitely aren't. <laughs> Now, again, nuanced, because there are places where China's actively gone after scammers infringing on U.S. patents, but obviously other more valuable patents, especially in the tech sector, have not been as well enforced. (laughs) So every country, it is a weird internal game of how they really want this to play out so that they retain the trust of the country they made the agreement with while still benefiting meaningfully. Yes, exactly. Like, there's all these different trade agreements. I mean, U.S., we have the North American Free Trade Agreement. Like, I think I replaced or was going to be replaced with the other one. I think... Under Trump. I don't remember I if they got signed so. into. I think so. Yeah, I'm unclear of the exact signing of these things. Guess what? I'm not too interested in trade agreements. I don't think that's... <laughs> Listen, this is why I found Star Wars The Phantom Menace to be the most interesting Star Wars. <laughs> A communications interruption can mean only one thing, sweetheart. But I, I just like want to bring up like a stupid thing I always find about politicians. We have such hyper capitalist politicians in the U.S. who are like free trade's the best thing in the world. Who are also like pushing for like tariffs and stuff constantly. And these two things are opposites. If you believe in free trade, if you believe a free market will figure it out, then tariffs don't make any sense because tariffs are you influencing the free market in the in favor of your own domestic producers, even though this often goes to hurt the consumer most. Yes. Like you're hurting all consumers at the benefit of a handful of often very large special interests. Let me just mention real quick why free trade is now the favorable thing to do in the modern world. Most economists think that free trade is a net benefit to countries because it allows countries to specialize on economic activities where they have an advantage and rely on other countries for one that they don't. So it's it's like this like trade-off win-win, really, in the global world. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And this also gets into how the free market works, where if I'm producing two goods and I have a competitor country who's way better than me at producing one good, I'll just not produce. I'll produce my other good better than that country. So that way, like, let's say I'm really good at making, in this terrible example, tea and coffee. If I know that Brazil's going to make way better coffee than me, I can choose to focus on my tea industry. And so people will know that, like, Cameron's an actual country, but I don't want to use that one. Cameron-donia can just make really <laughs> good tea, and then I won't have to worry about it. Like, it's, it's not just that it's going to make a better product, but it also implies I'll make that product cheaper and easier because I'm so good at making tea, I can make it more quickly and easily and cheaply than another country or competitor. Yeah, and it's a benefit that you as a country, you don't have to waste resources on stuff that you're not equipped for. And I'm mainly thinking of like just the geography of the country. Like if I'm in a really cold climate, I obviously can't grow stuff that grows in a warmer climate. Why would I try and push myself to produce those things when I could just not do that and import it from other areas. Exactly. That's that's a way better point than mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let's get into Cameradonia. Cameradonia. <laughs> One other point I want to bring about tariffs that I hadn't actually thought of before before researching this. 
So I actually used an indicator episode on tariffs as part of research for this episode. And they had an economist on that podcast episode, and they said something I never thought of before. And they said that the U.S. actually has a pretty big and diverse economy, so the U.S. can afford to take on and debate about tariffs, unlike other countries that are really dependent on trade and must be engaged in the world economy. So if the U.S. wants to create tariffs to help one specific industry or good— we can afford to do that, whereas other countries can't. Yeah, that's actually a huge point that I never thought about. Also, I like how you did your research because The Indicator is a great podcast, but more importantly, you use it to inform yourself and make yourself more knowledgeable on something you were researching. And I don't understand why people disagree with that line of reasoning. <laughs> okay, random <laughs> random plug. Or Go on. specific. Yeah, <laughs> continue. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's a huge thing to think about because there are lots of countries that maybe they have a strong internal agricultural sector, but obviously they don't have a strong tech sector mm-hmm. or maybe they have a strong tech sector but they don't have a good way to do maybe heavy industrial manufacturing. It's weird if you look at an economy to realize how many specific sectors there are doing how many specific things. And if I know that I can just get better, cheaper ballpoint pens from Germany, I might as well just do that. Yeah. And just that, since the U.S. has a big, diverse amount of industry in it, we we do make a lot of stuff. We also import a lot of stuff, but the U.S. itself makes a ton of diverse and crazy things. Just thinking that, oh, the U.S. actually has the privilege to play with all these tariffs and boost these economies and get into these political wars because we can survive it, whereas other countries just don't have that ability. Now, here's a real question. Are you going to get into the hilarious ways we get around tariffs? Because one of my favorites is we apparently have a tariff against Mexican imported cars. But here's something you have to understand about most things we own nowadays. They are complex and made of parts that come from all over the globe that are assembled into other parts that come from all over the globe that are eventually assembled into a final product that comes into our country. And Mexican manufacturing create every part of the car except for the final car, which is then assembled in the United States. So you have a car that has parts from all over the world, mostly assembled in Mexico, finally assembled and sold in America. That does not qualify for Mexican import tariffs on cars. So you're saying because the tariff is on a car, like a completed car, that if it's an incomplete car, the tariff doesn't apply? Yeah, and this was actually a weird problem we had with Germany after World War II. Germany wanted to protect its chicken farmers, so it was putting limits on imports of chickens from the United States. And America got peeved, so we had an import tariff on one thing Germany was really good at making after World War II, which was cars, Ah. and specifically trucks. If you ever think about it, and I'll admit, this is a mix of my own research and a few podcasts, and I got to shout out Planet Money just because you brought up the indicator. When it comes to the import of trucks, there's high import tariffs. There's still high import tariffs on trucks because it just came from this chicken, fighting this chicken import tax from Germany that just never went away. Very much Biden with this tax is like, oh, well, I didn't start this nationalist protectionist tariff, but it's here. So I could just sign it and yeah. then we would have it. <laughs> but people, I could just continue it on. Yeah. Like the person who does it is always seen as the jerk. But why don't people further down the road? Why don't future presidents, future leaders ever want to get rid of it? It's like, well, it's there. I don't have to look bad and I get to look like I'm protecting my own country and its interests even though we know that this tariff is inhibiting the import of trucks, making domestic truck prices higher 
all over the world, there are specific truck brands that are Asian and European that are like the go-to truck that we never see in America because of these import tariffs. Hmm. Also, what I think related to that is that I feel like it tends to be in the U.S. that once something's signed in law, it doesn't really get signed out of law. It takes a lot of effort to undo something. Yeah. Usually, that's that's why people favor legislation as opposed to executive orders, because executive orders with a new president, you can just boom, done. But when legislation comes around, you got to go through a lot of steps to get that legislation out or to rewrite it or to add on to it or all the other random loopholes we use in the U.S. government. Yeah, I don't know how much this applies to tariffs, but I mean, with the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, once you create a piece of legislation that's supposed to be protecting the American population in a specific way, any attempt to get rid of it requires an at least equal protection to be put in place or a significant justification for why that protection is no longer necessary. This doesn't really apply to tariffs because a lot of the power on writing tariffs is in the executive branch. I think that happened in the 70s or 80s that actually became mm -hmm. into U.S. law where that was allowed Again, that's just usually when I look at U.S. government and policy, once something's in place, it's hard to get something out of place. A hundred percent agree. So that is the end of the history of tariffs in Sam's History Corner. But I do want to conclude this that from all my research, my conclusion really is that tariffs in the modern world are now used to either promote a very specific good in a country or really just used as a political tool to threaten other countries. Mm-hmm. And as much as I want to dunk on tariffs, there's always going to be some case where it's particularly good. If your country is trying real hard to get into the tech sector, being protectionist might be one of the key tools you use because at the end of the day, Apple's just had way more years than you developing iPhones. Or I could think even getting into a more clean energy sector and yeah. things related to climate change. I could see tariffs being related to that of I want to boost this really particular industry. So yeah, like, maybe that'll help. At the end of the day, a tariff is a tax. Obviously, it's a far more focused tax. And the reason a lot of people disagree with tariffs in a global economy is also because of the fact that we are a global economy. So if I really want to say China... We're going to block import of your steel. China could be like, who cares? I have like Africa and European companies actively importing my steel. Like you do not affect me that much. Yeah. And I also want to get back to what we started at the top of this episode of the digital tax created by the UK, because part of me wonders if that's going to become a new trend in taxes. Like the idea of taxing revenue gained from a person's internet behavior is just a crazy concept to me. So I wonder if more of that's going to happen in the future. That I could do a whole episode on. And I, in some ways, I hope it does. But in reality, it's your data. And this is a very nuanced conversation about individual data rights. That if we just do taxes, I feel like it's just going to turn corporations into a weird money funding machine for governments. Mm. Which then introduces its own series of very strange, equally awkwardly nuanced problems. So, but that's a future episode I'm sure we're going to do. Yes. And on that note, it's time to end this episode. <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> so, everyone, if you want to learn more about tariffs, please check out the sources that are in the show notes. Yes. And are you going to play my YouTube video? 
from Cameron's YouTube Flex. Yes, and I will have Cameron's YouTube video there so you can learn more about that and your digital privacy rights. Obviously, as always, Scott, thank you so much for making sure we sound buttery smooth. Scott has all sorts of great services, so make sure to check him out. Also in the show notes. Yes. If you want to reach out to us, we're on social media at Sample Size Show. You can also reach out to Cameron specifically at Wildcard Cameron and check out his YouTube channel. It has a ton of great videos, more than just the one I'm going to put in the show notes. Just did one on VPNs, actually. Yeah. It's pretty pretty good. I know most people stopped listening by now, but if you haven't stopped listening, I just want you guys to know we appreciate you listening. And also, don't forget to take care of yourself. Bye. Bye. Bye.